Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. How are you all doing? Alhamdulillah. Did you do your homework? What was your homework? To read the ahadith. Read them in your mind or read them out loud? Out loud. So how was it? A very different experience because we're just used to reading the Qur'an. And alhamdulillah, after studying the Qur'an, you become so familiar with the words and with the ayat that it's almost natural to be fluent. And because of that, you begin to think that you know how to read Arabic. Huh? And especially if it will have all the harakat, the tashkil, you read it easily. But then you realize it's a little different. Hmm? But still, was it impossible? It was doable, right? Okay. So let me see how you read. I would like to hear also. No? So who would like to read? From the beginning of Wab Sifatul Salah. Go ahead, use the microphone. Read the Bab and the Hadith. Abwab Sifatul Salati. Babu Ijabi Takbiri. Waftitahi Salati. Haddathana Abu Yamani Kala. Akhbarana Shuaibun. Anil Zuhuri Kala. أخبرني أنس بن مالك الأنصاري أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ركب فرسا فجحش شقه الأيمن قال أنس رضي الله عنه فصلى لنا يومئذ صلاة من الصلوات وهو قاعد فصلينا وراءه قعودا ثم قال لما سلم إنما جعل الإمام ليؤتن به فإذا صلى قائما فصلوا قياما وإذا ركع فاركعوا وإذا رفع فارفعوا وإذا سجد فاسجدوا وإذا قال سمع الله لمن حمده فقولوا ربنا ولك الحمد بارك الله فيك ما شاء الله very good somebody from here next hadith in the microphone please حدثنا قتيبة قال حدثنا زيت عن ابن شهاب أن أنس بن مالك أنه قال خر رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أن فرس فجحش فصل لنا قائدا فصلينا معه قعودا فلما انصرف فقال إنما الإمام أو إنما جعل الإمام ليؤتم به فإذا كبر فكبروا وإذا ركع فاركعوا وإذا رفع فارفعوا وإذا قال سمع الله لمن حمد فقولوا ربنا ولك الحمد وإذا سجد فاسجدوا كنت ما شاء الله بارك الله فيك حدثنا أبو اليمان قال أخبرنا شعيب قال حدثني أبو الزنادي عن الأعرج عن أبي هريرة قال قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إنما جعل الإمام ليؤتم به فإذا كبر فكبروا وإذا ركع فاركعوا وإذا قال سمع الله لمن حمد فقولوا ربنا ولك الحمد وإذا سجد فاسجدوا وإذا صلى جالسا فصلوا جلوسا أجمعون باب رفع اليدين في التكبيرة الأولى مع الافتتاح سواء حدثنا عبد الله بن مسلمة أن مالك عن ابن شهاب أن سالم بن عبد الله عن أبيه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كان يرفع يديه حذو من 
Before him, Abul Yaman. Before him, Qutaybah. Before him, again, Abul Yaman. Okay? So, just make a list of the names of the teachers of Imam Bukhari. حدثنا محمد بن مقاتل قال أخبرنا عبد الله قال أخبرنا يونس عن الزهري أخبرني سالم بن عبد الله عن عبد الله بن عمر Who is Abdullah bin Umar? The son of Umar رضي الله عنهما May Allah be pleased with both of them Both of who? Umar and his son Abdullah Because both were companions قال he said Who said? Abdullah bin Umar because, see, عن عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله عنهما قال, he said, meaning Abdullah بن عمر said, رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم رأيت What does رأيت mean? I saw. He's saying, I saw the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا قام في الصلاة When he stood in the prayer, meaning when he began the prayer, when he began the qiyam, what did he do? رفع يديه he raised his hands, meaning both his hands. Hatta until Yakuna both were, meaning both the hands were, where Hadwa parallel to Mankibaihi, his shoulders. So when he began the prayer, he saw him raising his hands up to his shoulders. Wakana Yafa and he would do that. Do what? Raise his hands up to the shoulders. Hina yukabbiru. At the time when he would do takbir, yukabbiru, he would do takbir, lirruku'i, for ruku'r. Doing takbir for ruku'r, what does that mean? Doing takbir in order to go down into ruku'r. So he would also do that when going to ruku'r. وَيَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ And he would do that, what? رَفْعُ yadain, raising hands. إِذَا رَفْعَ رَأْسَهُ When he would raise his head, مِنَ الرُّكُورِ From the ruku'r, meaning when he would get up, from Rukur. وَيَقُولُ And he would say at that time, not Allahu Akbar, but he would say, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ Allah has heard the one who has praised him. وَلَا يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ And he would not do that. Do what? رَفْعُ الْيَدَيْنِ Raising the hands. فِي السُّجُودِ In the sujood. Meaning when going down into sujood and on getting up from sujood, he would not raise his hands at that time. Even though he would say the takbir, he would not raise his hands. Now I'm going to read the entire hadith. Okay? So follow along. حدثنا محمد بن مقاتل قال أخبرنا عبد الله قال أخبرنا يونس عن الزهري أخبرني سالم بن عبد الله عن عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله عنهما قال رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا قام في الصلاة رفع يديه حتى يكون حذو منكبيه وكان يفعل ذلك حين يكبر للركوع وَيَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ إِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ وَيَقُولُ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَهُ وَلَا يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ فِي السُّجُودِ Next hadith. حدثنا إسحاق الواسطي Another teacher. قال حدثنا خالد بن عبد الله عن خالد عن أبي قلابة أنه رأى مالك بن الحويرث So someone saw Malik bin Huwaydis. And who is Malik bin Huwaydis? A companion of the Prophet ﷺ. So this companion was seen, إِذَا صَلَّى When he would pray, كَبَّرَ He would say the takbir, وَرَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ And he would also raise his hands. وَإِذَا أَرَادَ And when he intended, أَنْ يَرْكَعَ That he should do rukur, 
He would raise his hands. وَإِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ And when he would raise his head, مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ From the ruku' meaning when he would lift up his head in order to get up from ruku' رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ Again he would raise his hands. وَحَدَّثَ And he narrated. He said, who? Abdullah bin Huwaydith. He said, أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ صَنَعَ هَكَذَا He said that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم صَنَعَ He did هَكَذَا like this. Meaning this companion saw the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم praying like this and this is why he prayed in this manner. And the people saw him praying in this manner. Now, what do we learn from both of these ahadith? What is Imam Bukhari proving? That the hands must be raised, meaning رَفْعُ الْيَدَيْنِ must be done during the prayer with the takbir at these certain times. Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah, he said that Imam Bukhari has reported at least 17 companions, 17 companions of Rasulullah wasallam saying or doing the رَفْعُ الْيَدَيْنِ. So 17 companions have been reported by Imam Bukhari to have done Rafa'ul Yadain in Salah. And amongst those 17 companions are the Ashram of Asharah also. Those 10 companions which were given the good news of Jannah by who? By the Prophet ﷺ. And other scholars have said that the companions who have uh, narrated directly or indirectly the fact that the Prophet ﷺ used to do Rafa'ul Yadain, their number comes up to at least 50. So around 50 companions have been reported to do Rafa al-Yadayn. And obviously, the companion would only do what he saw the Messenger wasallam do. So the actions of the companions are an evidence for us. And secondly, the companions also reported that the Messenger wasallam did that. So if 50 companions have been reported to have done this, to have narrated this, then is this not a clear evidence for us? Do we have any room for dispute over here for saying that oh we should not do this no so we see that majority of the scholars they are of the view that the Rafa'ul Yadain must be done and there is some scholars who say that it should not be done and amongst them is Imam Abu Hanifa but remember that the proofs that are used to show that Rafa'ul Yadain must not be done they are either inauthentic or those proofs are irrelevant, or the method of deduction is incorrect. And on the other hand, the evidences that show that Rafa'ul Yadain should be done, they are many, they are more authentic, and they are very clear. So for example, both of these ahadith, are they authentic? Of course. Are they very clear? Is there any doubt? Is there any confusion in these ahadith? No, it's very obvious that Rafa'ul Yadain was the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. And on the other hand, the evidences that are used, as I mentioned to you, either they are inauthentic or they are irrelevant. So for example, one proof that is used to show that Rafa al-Yadayn must not be done is that there is a hadith in Sahih Muslim in which the Prophet ﷺ, he once came to certain companions and he said, how is it that I see you lifting your hands like the tails of horses? Meaning, in your salah, why is it that you lift up your hands again and again just like a horse? What does it do? lifts up its tail, right? So, And he said, be calm in the prayer. Now this evidence is used by certain scholars to show that Rafa'ul Yadain should not be done. But the thing is that, remember earlier we learned that one hadith, it tells you about one aspect of the incident, right? But when you look at other ahadith which narrate the same incident, then you get a broader picture. 
So when you look at other ahadiths that report the same incident, what do we learn? That the people were raising their hands again and again during tashahud. They were sitting in tashahud and they were lifting up their hands. Why? You know, like a person is sitting and he's itchy and then he wants to fix, you know, do something on his ear. So just like a horse, what does it do? After every few moments, you know, a fly is bothering it, so it will keep lifting up its tail. So the people were doing something like this when they were sitting in tashahud, as we learned from other ahadith. Imam Bukhari said, the one who depends upon the hadith of Jabir ibn Samura, meaning this hadith, for forbidding the raising of hands at rukur, then there is not for him a portion of knowledge. The person who's saying this, then it shows that he doesn't have any knowledge. Because this is well known, having no difference of opinion over it, that this was in the state of tashahud. Other reports of the incident, what do they show? That this was done during tashahud. So this is why the Prophet ﷺ told them not to do that. Imam Bukhari said that whoever claims that Rafa al-Yadayn is an innovation, meaning the Prophet ﷺ did not do it and the people after him invented this practice, then he is accusing the companions. For none of them have been proven to leave it. All of the companions did Rafa al-Yadayn. Al-Hasan and Humayd ibn Hilal, they said the companions of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ all used to raise their hands without exception. So some people, they have argued that initially, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, he told the people to raise their hands. And later on, this instruction was abrogated. It was mansukh. It was abrogated. And they said that there was a reason behind why the Prophet ﷺ told the people to raise their hands. And that was that some hypocrites, when they would come to pray, they would hide their idols under their arms. Okay, So they would come to pray, and the idols would be hidden under their arms. So they were told, when you're praying, and as you do takbir, then you have to raise your hands. So then they, when they would raise their hands, their idols would fall. Okay. Now, first of all, the question is, what's the evidence of this? There is no hadith that tells us that this happened. If you trace these reports down, back, there is no isnad. There is no, they're not authentic. Secondly, even if you logically analyze this, when the person would first say takbiratul ihram, any idol hidden down there would fall. Okay? So there would be no need to say that do takbir again when going down into rukur and do takbir again when coming back up from rukur. Okay. And if it was necessary to make sure that the idols would fall, then this would continue up to the sajda. Why is it that takbir of sajda is left and then the second rakah again, you know, for rukur takbir is done? Okay, hands are raised. And then again for sajda they are left. And when getting up from the second rakah, the shahud, then again hands are to be raised. I mean, it logically also it doesn't make sense. And you see, it was not the way of the Prophet ﷺ to deal with the people in this manner. Okay? In the Qur'an, what was he instructed? That the hypocrites, how should you deal with them? Turn away from them. Ignore them. Whatever they do. So the Prophet ﷺ, it was not his way to confront the hypocrites such that you know their sins or whatever they were doing would be exposed. Alright? And there's no proof, no proof of this, that this actually happened. So we see that when you compare both the opinions, Rafa'ul Yadin should be done or it should not be done, which proofs are more solid? That it should be done. I mean, if you just take these two ahadith, I think that's sufficient. Isn't it? Even one hadith is sufficient. You don't need to take 50 ahadith. One is sufficient. It is enough. 
as, as a proof for those who wish to follow Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Bab ila aina yarfa'u yadayhi. Ila aina. Ila to aina where? Meaning up to where? Up to what height? Yarfa'u yadayhi. He should raise his hands. Meaning when the musalli, when the person who's praying salah, when he raises up his hands with takbir, up to what level, up to what height should he raise his hands? Have you ever wondered about that? Because some people, their takbir is so, you know, below their shoulders that you don't even know if the takbir has been done or not. Others, they insist on touching their ears. Hmm? So what's the right way? How did the Prophet ﷺ do it? Because for us, the standard is what? The sunnah. Right? That is what we are interested in. That is what we want to do. How did he do takbir? Now, Imam Bukhari has asked a question. إِلَىٰ أَيْنَ يَرْفَعُ يَدَيْهِ Okay? And the answer is not given. Why? Because the answer is quite broad. As we will learn. وَقَالَ أَبُو حُمَيْدٍ فِي أَصْحَابِهِ Abu Humaid said to his companions, meaning to his students or the people who were with him, رَفَعَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ the Prophet ﷺ, he raised He raised his hands up to the level of his shoulders. Did we read this earlier also? Yes. Now Imam Bukhari mentions a hadith. Okay. Uh, now you see this, this statement, وَقَالَ أَبُوْ حُمَيْدٍ فِي أَصْحَابِهِ Is this a hadith? No, it's a statement. Okay. Now in Sahih Bukhari, you will also find Imam Bukhari using statements from the Qur'an, statements of the companions, and statements of the scholars, in addition to the ahadith. All of them, he uses them as evidence. Okay? حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوا الْيَمَانِ قَالَ أَخْبَرَنَا شُعَيْبٌ عَنِ الزُّهْرِيِّ قَالَ أَخْبَرَنَا سَالِمُ بْنُ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ أَنَّ عَبْدَ اللَّهِ بْنِ عُمَرَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمَا he said, He said, I saw the Prophet Who is saying this? Abdullah bin Umar. So this is the hadith of Abdullah bin Umar. He is narrating. He said, I saw the Prophet He opened. Meaning he began. He began the salah with what? At-takbir. Okay, the salah in the prayer, meaning he began the prayer with the takbir, and when he did that, farafa, so he raised yadayhi his hands, hina yukabbiru at the time when he said the takbir. So as he pronounced the, the takbir, as he said Allahu Akbar, at the same time, what did he do? He also raised his hands, hatta yajalahuma. Until he placed them both, meaning he took them up to the height where? Hadwaman kibayhi. Parallel to his shoulders. Wa kabbara lirrukuri. And when he said the takbir for the rukur, fa'ala mithlahu. He did similar to that. He did like that. Meaning he did the same thing again. He raised his hands up to his shoulders. Wa qala samiallahu liman hamida. And when he said samiallahu liman hamida, fa'ala mithlahu. He did the same. Meaning he raised his hands up to his shoulders. وَقَالَ And he said, رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدُ وَلَا يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ حِينَ يَسْجُدُ And he did not do that when he went into sajda. وَلَا حِينَ يَرْفَعُ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ السُّجُودِ Nor did he do this when he raised his head from the sujood. 
Okay. Would you like to read this hadith? Huh? So this hadith, everybody, read together. With me. حدثنا أبو اليمان قال أخبرنا شعيب عن الزهري قال أخبرنا سالم بن عبد الله أن عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله عنهما قال رأيت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم افتتح التكبير في الصلاة فرفع يديه حين يكبر حتى يجعلهما حذو منكبيه وإذا كبر للركوع فعل مثله وإذا قال سمع الله لمن حمده فعل مثله وقال ربنا ولك الحمد ولا يفعل ذلك حين يسجد ولا حين يرفع رأسه من السجود So in this hadith what do we learn? Up to what level should a person raise his hands? Up to his shoulders, paddle to his shoulders. Now, if you're like very, if a person wants to be very, very mechanical or very, you know, extremely detailed, then the question is, where exactly? Again, right? Meaning, should the hands parallel to the shoulders? So your palms should be parallel to the shoulders or your fingers should be parallel to the shoulders or the bottom of your hand should be parallel to you know end of your shoulders. How is it supposed to be? Now, what have we been told in the Qur'an? Don't ask too many questions. It's good to know certain details. But when we have been told parallel to the shoulders, that is sufficient. You don't need to know the exact height, you know, by, by millimeters, by centimeters, because the more questions you ask, the more difficulty you create for yourself. Right? And then those questions, I mean, the details that they will bring, they're irrelevant. It's sufficient for us to know that the companions describe the raising of the hands as parallel to the shoulders. Okay? And we see that the fact that Imam Bukhari is leaving it as a question shows that the answer is broad. Parallel to the shoulders because from other ahadith we also learn that the Prophet ﷺ raised his hands up to the ears. Now, it depends on how the person is describing. Maybe what he meant was that his fingers were up to his ears. Okay? Or he meant that his palm was up to his ears. Allahu alam. Because you see, when you lift up your hands up to your shoulders, it's natural. Right? Part of it will be close to your ear. Part of it will be closer to your shoulder. And it really depends on what the you know viewer is looking at it as. Right? What he's thinking. The same thing, uh, the same uh, thing could be described by one person in a, in a particular way and by another individual in a different way. Right? So in another hadith we learn, a companion, he described that the Prophet ﷺ, uh, he stood and said takbir, and he raised his hands until they were level with his ears. Now, which part of the hand was level with the ears? It's just simple. Raise your hands up to your shoulders. Okay? But we see that uh, there's nowhere that it is mentioned that the hands must touch the ears. There's no dalil for this, that the hands must touch the ears. Okay? And neither for the men nor for the women. The same ruling is for the men and the same ruling is for the women. Hands should be raised up to the 
shoulders, obviously somewhere between the ears and the shoulders, but not that it should they should touch the shoulders or they should touch the ears. No, it's just natural. So do this right now. Very natural. A, a little bit higher. Okay? Because if you do it here, this is too low. Okay? If you do it like this, this is better because it's closer to the ears and closer to the shoulders. A little bit higher. Good. You're fine. You're fine. A little bit higher, please. A little bit higher. That's fine. A little bit higher. A little bit higher. Good. A little bit higher. Because you see, in one report, ears have mentioned. In another report, shoulders have mentioned. So make sure that it's somewhere between your ears and your shoulders. Okay? Alhamdulillah. Bab رَفْعِ الْيَدَيْنِ إِذَا قَامَ مِنَ الرَّكْعَتَيْنِ رَفْعِ Chapter, رَفْعِ الْيَدَيْنِ Raising the hands. إِذَا قَامَ مِنَ الرَّكْعَتَيْنِ When he stands, from where? From the two rak'ah. What does it mean? After the second rak'ah, okay, from the sajda, when you get up, what do you do? You sit in the shahud. And then you stand up to perform your third rak'ah. So Imam Bukhari is saying that a person must also raise his hands when he gets up from the second rak'ah, meaning when he begins the third rak'ah, he should also raise his hands when he says the takbir. Okay? Now, notice over here, إِذَا قَامَ When he gets up. So what does it mean? You're sitting in the shahud. You finish the shahud. And when you get up, so when you're standing, then you raise your hands. Not that as you're sitting, you raise your hands and then you get up. Okay? Or as you're getting up, your hands are here and you lose balance and you fall. Okay? No. You get up comfortably in a very natural way. And when you're standing, you raise your hands. Okay? And then you fall down. What's the evidence of this? حدثنا عياش New name. قال حدثنا عبد الأعلى قال حدثنا عبيد الله عن نافع أن ابن عمر Again, whose hadith is this? Of Abdullah bin Umar. كان إذا دخل في الصلاة That when he would enter the prayer. Enter the prayer? What does it mean? Enter the state of prayer, meaning when he would begin the prayer. كَبَّرَ وَرَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ So, over here, Nafir is basically reporting the way of Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu. Okay? Because it is عَنْ نَافِعٍ أَنَّ ابْنَ عُمَرَ He's saying that Ibn Umar, this is how he used to pray. So, the way of the companion is being described here. Because remember that the companions, whatever they did, they did it because they saw the Prophet ﷺ doing it or they uh, they uh, were following his instructions. So the practice of the companions is an evidence for us. Okay? So Ibn Umar, when he would enter the prayer, when he would begin it, كَبَّرَ He would say takbir, وَرَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ And he would raise his hands. وَإِذَا رَكَعَ And when he would go down into rukur, رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ He would raise his hands. وَإِذَا قَالَ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ When he would say سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ Meaning when he would get up from rukur, رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ He would raise his hands. وَإِذَا قَامَ مِنَ الرَّكْعَتَيْنِ And when he would get up from the two rak'ah, meaning from the second rak'ah, رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ He would raise his hands. وَرَفَعَ ذَلِكَ بْنُ عُمَرَ إِلَى نَبِيِّ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ now what does he mean by Rafa over here? 
He raised this to the Prophet ﷺ? No. Rafa over here gives a meaning of that he referred this action. Okay, he raised it, meaning he linked it to who? To the Prophet ﷺ. Meaning Nafir is saying that Ibn Umar used to do this. And he mentioned that the, this was the way of the Prophet ﷺ. He didn't make this up himself. Rather, he got this practice from who? From Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So even though in this hadith, a statement of the Prophet sallallahu is not mentioned, or the action of the Prophet sallallahu is not mentioned, but it is stated that this action was performed on the basis of who? Of the sunnah. Okay? So even this is an evidence. رواه محمد بن سلمة عن أيوب عن نافع عن ابن عمر عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. Abu Khari mentions another chain over here that this was also narrated by Hamad from Ayub, from Nafi, from Ibn Umar, from the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. ورواه ابن طهمان عن أيوب وموسى ابن عقبة مختصرا. And he says that these people also narrated this briefly. Meaning the same thing, they mention it briefly. What? That the Prophet ﷺ used to raise his hands with takbir at these points in salah. Clear? Okay. So in summary, what do we learn? Hands are to be raised at these points during the prayer. Now everybody read this hadith. حَدَّثَنَا عَيَّاشٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ الْأَعْلَى قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عُبَيْدُ اللَّهِ عَنْ نَافِعٍ أَنَّ بْنَ عُمَرَ كَانَ إِذَا دَخَلَ فِي الصَّلَاةِ كَبَّرَ وَرَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ وَإِذَا رَكَعَ رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ وَإِذَا قَالَ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَهُ رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ وَإِذَا قَامَ مِنَ الرَّكْعَتَيْنِ رَفَعَ يَدَيْهِ وَرَفَعَ ذَلِكَ ابْنُ عُمَرَ إِلَى نَبِيِّ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ رَوَاهُ حَمَّادُ بْنُ سَلَمَةَ عن أيوب عن نافع عن ابن عمر عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ورواه ابن طهمان عن أيوب وموسى بن عقبة مختصرا Now you see over here one hadith and Imam Bukhari mentions three chains three chains okay and this happens many times in Sahih Bukhari why does Imam Bukhari do this one report but three different chains or one chain, you know, a hadith he will mention with the chain and he will say the same has been reported by so and so and so and so. Why? Yes, more proof to make it stronger. Okay? And this shows that Imam Bukhari tried his best to keep the book brief as possible. Because if he went on mentioning every chain with every hadith, then there would be many. Okay? And this is from where the difference in the numbering of the hadith in Sahih Bukhari came from also. So places like this, some people consider this to be one narration, others consider it to be three narrations or two narrations. So this is why there's a difference in the number. Is there any word that you have found difficult to understand? Any word so far? Hmm? Any question so far? Am I going too fast or too slow? Huh? Please let me know. Okay. How are you taking your notes? What are you writing? In the book, that's fine. You can write in the book, you can write on a separate notebook, whatever you feel uh, easy. But um, with regards to the explanation of the ahadith, sometimes you will need more space. Okay, so what do you do for that? You write it in a separate book? Okay, good. 
uh, are you writing the meanings also of the words? Good. This is what I was going to advise you, that don't go on writing the meaning of every single word. Now, mashallah, your vocabulary has increased. So those few words that are different, that you are not familiar with or a different form of a word, write the meaning down over there. Okay? Because inshallah, eventually when you will have a test, huh, then you will be asked to write the meanings. Okay? To Because I have to make sure that you actually understood the text of the hadith. So for that, it would be good if you wrote the meanings of whatever words you are unfamiliar with. And if you write them down now, it will be much easier for you. As opposed to looking through later, you know, from a dictionary. And that's also good. But save your time. Inshallah. Okay. And if there is any word that you don't understand why I translated it in a particular way, please ask. Okay. Inshallah. So if you are not familiar with the Arabic text at all, then um, follow along with the running translation. Okay. Follow along with what? With the running translation. So you have the book, right? And the running translation is there. So uh, follow along with that, inshallah. I, I can't expect you to start memorizing the word to word. Okay, Just make sure that as I'm explaining, uh, you look at the Arabic so that you become familiar with the words. And inshallah, you will notice that certain words are repeated so often that you will uh, become familiar with them. So for example, the word rafa'ah. Do you know the meaning of Rafa by now? Alhamdulillah. Right? And if please, any anywhere you get stuck, you don't understand, please just raise your hand and ask. We have plenty of time in this class. Alhamdulillah. And we, I don't want to rush you. I want to make sure that you understand everything. Okay? Bab wad'i yumna ala yusra. Wad'i. What does wad'a mean? To put, to place. Okay? Wada'a. يضعو, to place. So wad'i, to place. Al-yumna. What is yumna? Right. So placing the right ala upon al-yusra. What is yusra? Left. So placing the right hand on the left. When? After takbir. It's well known that when a person does a takbir, he says, Allahu Akbar, to begin the prayer, he raises his hands. Where do his hands go? On his chest. And how should they be placed? Left on right? Right on top and left under? How? Okay, good. So the left on the chest and the right hand on top of that. Now how? Some people, what they do is, I've seen it myself, that they will join the right hand and the left hand like this, the fingers. Some will just place the fingers of the right hand over the fingers of the left hand and kind of like, you know, do this. Others will place just the hand, right hand, over the left hand. Others will put the right hand, the palm of the right hand, on the wrist of the left hand, okay? And this is how they will hold. Others will put right hand on the left elbow. Many people do this. What do we learn from this? Placing the right over the left. How exactly? Right hand over the left. How? Let's find out. Okay. Hadathana Abdullah ibn 
Sahil ibn Sa'ad radiyallahu anhu, he said that kanan nasu, the people were yu'maruna, they would be ordered. Kanan literally means it was, he was. But when it comes with fair mudariya, it gives a meaning of habit. Okay? So kanan nasu yu'maruna, the people used to be ordered. Meaning this was the norm. This is what the people were told to do. أَنْ يَضَعَ الرَّجُلُ That a man should place يَضَعَ Same same word وَضْعُ okay, وَضْعِ To place يَضَعَ He places So people were told that يَضَعَ الرَّجُلُ That a man should place الْيَدْ The hand Which hand? الْيُمْنَ The right one عَلَى Upon ذِرَاعِهِ What is ذِرَاع? Forearm Forearm. Your arm is mainly between your elbow and your wrist. Okay? But the dirar, okay, this part. So it's not just the hand, but also a part of your arm. On his left forearm. in the salah. This is what the people were told to do. Qala Abu Hazim. Abu Hazim said, La a'lamuhu. I do not know illa except. Yanmi ذَلِكَ Yanmi It goes back ذَلِكَ that That meaning this practice This practice that is mentioned over here That the people are, were told To place their right hand over their left forearm This went back to who? إِلَى النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. To the Prophet ﷺ Meaning the people were ordered to do It's obvious Abu Hazim said Who told them? The Prophet ﷺ, because who were the people present at that time? The companions, and who were they ordered by? The Messenger ﷺ. قَالَ إِسْمَعِيلُ Ismail said, يُنْمَا ذَلِكَ وَلَمْ يَقُلْ يَنْمِي He pronounced the word as yunma, meaning it is attributed, and he did not say yanmi. Okay. Now the word yanmi, yunma, what is this? In the language of uh, muhaddithun, okay, hadith scholars, near them the word yanmi, or yunma majul form of that, it basically means it is linked, it is referred back to. Meaning this comes from who? From the Prophet ﷺ. So, in this hadith, what do we see? That the understanding of the companions was that the right hand be placed on the left hand, left forearm. In a hadith we learned, the Prophet ﷺ said, that we prophets have been instructed to hasten our iftar. And delay our suhoor. Hasten our iftar, meaning as soon as the fast is supposed to end, break the fast immediately. This is what all the prophets were told. And delay our suhoor, meaning have it as late as possible, until the last moments. Okay? Not after that, but up to uh, the last moments. And that we place our right hand over our left hand in the prayer. So all of the prophets were told that in the prayer, what were they required to do? Place the right on the left. This was the sunnah of every prophet, including Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa And this hadith is reported in Sahih al-Jami'ah al Now, what we learn from different ahadiths, when you put them all together, what we understand is that right hand should be placed on the left hand, wrist and forearm. You might say how? How can you get your right hand on all three? 
on the left hand, wrist, and arm. How? That if you place the palm of your right hand on the wrist of your left, then what will happen? Your fingers will be on the forearm, and the back of your hand will be where? On the left hand. So you understand? So this way, what happens? The hand is on the left. Okay? Now, in some other ahadith, we also learn that the right hand may also clasp the left wrist. Okay? Because over here, what do we learn? Wadr. Wadr is to just put. Just put. But from other ahadith, the word akh also we learn, meaning to hold. To hold, to clasp. And if you think about it, if you're just placing it like this, uh, it's fine, but if you kind of clasp it, Okay, then what happens? It's more firm and all, meaning the hold is better. Okay, your hands are not just going to fall. The hold is better. And if you think about it, it's also more, you know, it, it shows more humility. It shows more humility. Okay. In a hadith which is reported in An-Nasa'i, we learn that while Ibn Hujr uh, he said, I saw the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he was standing in prayer, he clasped his right hand over his left. So clasped his right hand over his left. Now, what do we learn from this hadith and the bab that Imam Bukhari has mentioned? That And the other hadith that I mentioned that this was the way of the prophets. That hands must be folded on the chest during qiyam. Okay? You see, in every position of salah, Hands are supposed to be placed somewhere or the other. Okay? So for example, in ruku, where are our hands? On the knees. In sajda, where are they? On the ground. So in qiyam, where do they have to be? On the chest. Not that they should be hanging on the sides. If they're left hanging on the sides, then this is clearly khilaf sunnah This clearly contradicts the sunnah. Alright? And the proof that some people use that Imam Malik said, or Imam Malik did, then uh, the fact is that Imam Malik, it is said that um, the people who saw him hanging his hands, meaning leaving them on his side during the prayer, it was because Imam Malik, he was forced to, he was being forced by the governor of the time to give a certain fatwa. And Imam Malik refused. Because that was contradicting the Qur'an and Sunnah. But that governor wanted to force Imam Malik, so he had him beaten. And when Imam Malik was beaten so severely, he wasn't able to lift up his arms. He wasn't able to physically lift up his arms. And we know that when a person is incapable of doing something, then he is excused from that. So this is the reason why he didn't, for a few days, he didn't lift up his hands you know, and he didn't cross them over his chest. This was a reason. Otherwise, we see that in Muwatta, in the book of Imam Malik, there are reports that show that the right hand must be placed on the left. So for us, the evidence is not the statement of uh, a scholar or the action of a scholar. For us, the evidence is what? The sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. Okay? Now, one more question. Where should the hands be placed? Okay, you place the right over the left, you know, the right palm over the left wrist. Okay, clear. You can hold, you can place it, you can clasp. 
but where, which position? Should it be on the chest like really high or medium or low, uh, above the navel, below the navel? Where should it be? Hmm? Where should it be? Now there's three positions amongst the scholars, meaning there are three opinions. And we, we look at every single one of them. Would you like to know? Why? So that we can correct ourselves? Okay, and so that we know why we are doing what we're doing. Because it's very important to know the evidence of what we're doing. So that we are not ever shaky. Because you know sometimes we're doing something like, yeah, I don't even know if it's right or not. No, forget it. Who cares? I'm just doing it. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not okay. Everyone's okay. Nobody's okay. Be confident. And what what is it that will bring you confidence? Knowledge. Okay. So there's three uh, opinions. Firstly, some scholars have said the hands should be placed right over the left on the chest. Okay? Where is your chest? Obviously, everyone knows what the chest is, right? Now, it doesn't have to be right below the neck so that a person is almost choking himself. Whatever position is most comfortable for a person. Okay? For one person, it could be high. For another person, it could be slightly lower. You know, as long as it's the chest... Whatever is convenient. We haven't been told 40 degree angle, 60 degree angle. No, it's been left to us. Chest. Okay, whatever is convenient. What's the evidence of this? In Ibn Khuzayma, Ibn Khuzayma, remember who was he? One of the students of Imam Bukhari. I mentioned to you four students of Imam Bukhari by name. One of them was also Ibn Khuzayma. He reported, he, he narrated that while bin Hujal, Anhu, companion of Rasulullah he said that I prayed with the messenger of Allah وسلم, and he placed his right hand over his left hand on his chest so the words on his chest they're mentioned and this hadith is classed as sahih by Sheikh Al-Bani so it is considered authentic and from this what do we see what was the way of the Prophet وسلم, on the chest some scholars said above the navel meaning waist so, think about it. If it's on your waist or on your stomach, do you call that chest? Would you call that chest? No. Chest is where? Anywhere from here to here. Okay? But when you go too low, then that is your stomach. That's your waist. Okay? So, another opinion is above the navel. And this was stated by Imam Ahmad, but there's no evidence for this. Okay? There's no dalil for this. Thirdly, Another opinion is below the navel. And in particular, they said that the men should put, place their hands below the navel and the women should place their hands on the chest. Okay. Now, what's the evidence of this below the navel? There is a narration of Ali anhu which says, it is sunnah to place the right hand over the left beneath the navel when praying. And this is reported by Abu Dawood. However, this hadith has been classed as darif, weak, by a nawawi Imam al-Nawawi, okay? Ibn Hajar, and many other scholars. So, many of the scholars, the muhaddithun, they have said that this hadith is weak. So, out of the three opinions, which one should we follow? First one. Why? Okay, why? Because there's hadith. Simple. There's proof. And for the other opinions... Uh, there are statements of scholars, and we have great love and respect for those scholars. But is there any evidence, any proof 
when compared to the proof of the first opinion? No. Okay? Meaning there's no solid proof. There might be a hadith that are used, but they're not, uh, they're not necessarily authentic. Okay. And again, remember that there's no difference between the men and the women in this regard. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, And this was same for men and women. The differences are basically in the hijab, in the clothing. And in jama'ah, obviously, the men at the front and the women at the back. Other than that, there is no difference. The method of the prayer is the same. And if we say that there should be a difference, then we have to see what the proof of that is. Is there any proof from the sunnah? No, there is no proof from the sunnah. From the statements of the companions? No, there is no proof. From the statements of the scholars? Yes, they said. They did say. But with all due respect, for us, the way of the Prophet ﷺ is preferable. Now one question. From this we learn that the hand should be placed on the chest. Is there any uh, wisdom? Is there any benefit? Why have we been told to place our hands on the chest during the prayer? Okay, you were placing it on your heart. The heart is where the niyyah is. So you're you know, like holding yourself together. Actually, scholars did say that. Okay, Because when a person wants to preserve something, he puts his hand on it. So your heart is, you know, should be fully involved in the prayer. So you have your hand on it. Okay, go ahead. Very true. That if the hands are not supposed are not placed somewhere, then they will be busy doing something else. Right? Because our hands are obviously always moving, always doing something. And if there is no place for the hands in prayer, then they would be all over the place. It's like, you know, children, what are they told so that they can focus on something? Like, for example, when they're writing, and then they put their pencil down over writing one word, and then they're just looking here and there, touching other people's things. So what are they told? Hold your pencil and don't put it down. And sometimes it happens to children as they're eating, they forget that they're eating. They start socializing, they start playing. So what are they told? Hold your spoon and don't put it down. Your hand should be where? It should be holding the spoon. You're not allowed to put your spoon down. Just focus on holding your spoon. And you know that if the child is holding their spoon, then what are they going to do? They're going to eat. And the moment they put it down, خلاص, they'll forget. So when we are told to place our hands on the chest, this helps in khushur. It helps in concentrating in prayer. Any other reason? Yes. It shows more humility. It shows more humility. Uh, have you ever seen uh, an imam leading people in prayer? I'm sure you've seen many videos. The hands are placed here and the imam is looking down. What does that show? So much humility. You know, especially the month of Ramadan, when the taraweeh is going on, people are doing tawaf, right? So I remember once uh, taraweeh was going on and I was doing tawaf and I passed by, you know, I saw the imam and it was so amazing to see hands are here uh, you know so uh, such a humble posture so humble it really helps you focus in the prayer and think about it if your hands are placed on your uh, waist and especially hand on the elbow is it humble it's like yeah okay I'm standing I'm standing it almost shows like I'm bored Hmm? But if you're standing like this, 
it helps you bend your head slightly also which will help you look down at the place of sajda likewise if the hands are placed below the navel i i don't know uh, for me I, i i practiced all these three positions last night as i was preparing for the class really to experience which one is better and honestly what i felt was that when you, when the hands are placed you know hand on the left elbow on the chest it really helps you have more khushu and this is amazing the next bab that imam bukhari writes is al khushu fi salah humility in prayer hmm? what's the link placing your hands on the chest right over the left will definitely help you be more humble in prayer you would think that yes god when we hold our elbow okay meaning right hand over the left elbow i mean this is a position in which you can stand before anybody and we do that you know we fold our arms literally and stand before other people and what does it show that i'm closed up i'm not really interested in you or i'm uh, concerned for myself i'm holding something back huh but hand on the left uh, wrist placed on the chest this is a position in which you stand only before allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it shows humility that even placing the hand hands below the navel this is also a form of you know showing respect to another human being maybe okay uh you know a person standing in front of a king or uh, you know in a court or something and or listening attentively to someone and their hands are clasped together but their just arms are hanging in front of them basically but again before allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it has to be absolute and ultimate form of humility and that will be when the hands are on the chest hmm? subab al khushu'i fi salah humility in the prayer as important as it is for the method of the prayer to be correct and in that we pay attention to raising the hands up to a certain level and placing them on the chest in a certain way in this process humility the spirit of prayer that must not be neglected because you see before mam bukhari gets into the details of prayer he reminds us khushur fi salah be concerned about where to place your hands how high you should lift them but in this process don't forget khushur don't think it's just a very mechanical method focus on that definitely it is important be as close to the sunnah of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam as possible but don't neglect the spirit of the prayer because think about it many times it happens that when we want to uh you know perform the salah most accurately our entire focus is on what positioning of the hands comparing ourselves with the person standing next to us analyzing their prayer thinking about who they are where they've studied from and why they perform in a certain way you know what focus on khushur because we are standing before allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so al khushur fi salah hadathana ismailu قال حدثني مالك عن ابي الزناد عن الاعرج عن ابي هريره ان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال هل ترون قبلتي ها هنا ابو هريره رضي الله عنه said that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said هل ترون do you see 
meaning do you think that qiblati my qibla and over here qibla meaning what i am facing hahuna is here hahuna right here meaning you see me facing forward you think that i am just looking this way meaning when i am praying you think that i am just facing my qibla and i have no idea as to what's going on behind me wallahi by allah ma not yakhfa it is hidden alayya on me ruku'ukum your ruku' wala khushu'ukum nor your khushu' wa inni la arakum and indeed i see you wara'a dhahri behind my back you understand the text of this hadith what is the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam saying that you see me facing forward here But do you think that I'm just looking here and I have no idea as to what's going on behind me? By Allah, I know how you're doing your rukur and I know how much khushur you have in your prayer because I can see behind myself. حدثنا محمد بن بشار قال حدثنا غندر قال حدثنا شعبة قال سمعت قتادة عن أنس بن مالك عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال Anas ibn Malik is narrating over here now. The Prophet ﷺ said, Aqimu, Aqimu, establish, meaning properly perform. What? Ar-Ruku'a, the Ruku'a, was sujuda and the sujud. During the prayer, you must properly perform the Ruku'a and the sujud, meaning completely. Fawallahi, for by Allah, inni la'arakum min ba'di. Indeed, I see you after me. After me, meaning when you're standing behind me, I see you. Warubbama, and perhaps, Qala he said, meaning the, the narrator, Anas bin Malik, he said, that perhaps the Prophet ﷺ said, مِن بَعْدِ ظَهْرِ After my back, meaning behind my back. إِذَا رَكَعْتُمْ When you do rukur, وَسَجَدْتُمْ And you do sajda. Now what do we see here? In both of these ahadiths, we see that when some people were not physically performing the salah properly, correctly, in the sense that they were not performing the rukur properly, they were not performing their sujood properly, then the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded them. And he said that, you think I'm just facing this way and I have no idea as to what you're doing behind me? I see you. Now the question is, how did the Prophet ﷺ see behind him? He knew the unseen? In the Qur'an there are evidences that show the Prophet ﷺ did not know the unseen. So how did he know what the people were doing behind him? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informed him. How? He knows better. Because ghayb is only known to Allah. Right? And he can give whatever knowledge to whatever servant that he wills. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent wahi to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he made him see things that others did not see. Alright? There were many occasions when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saw something and others did not see. Jibreel would come to the Prophet ﷺ. People would not see Jibreel. He would see Jibreel. Jibreel would come and recite the Qur'an to the Prophet ﷺ. He would hear him, but other people would not. Right? And this is something that should not be very difficult for us to understand. Because think about it. When a person, he's dying, and the angel of death appears in order to take his soul, and the angel of death does not come alone, he comes with a group of angels. Who sees all those angels? Only the nine person. Others don't see. Right? So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can show whatever to any servant of His. 
Alright? And if the Prophet ﷺ is saying that I see you behind me, we accept his words. But we don't exaggerate this and generalize this, that the Prophet ﷺ could see everything and he knew everything. No, there has to be proof for that. And if you think about it, if a person is facing a particular way and he has a rare view mirror that he can see behind him, right? Very clearly. So how exactly this happened? Allah knows better. Okay? But if you think about it, generally uh, amongst a group of people, okay, even if there's one person who's moving excessively behind you, okay, you can sense that. You can feel it. You can feel that disturbance. Right? Something's going on behind you many times, something unusual, you sense it. So if you as a normal, you know, as an ordinary human being can sense something behind yourself, then the Prophet ﷺ could see behind himself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed him. Why? What's the wisdom behind that? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give this, you know, uh, ability to the Prophet ﷺ? Because he was supposed to lead and teach the people. If he was not informed of the state of the people, then how would he teach them? How would he correct them? How would he guide them? Alright? Now, Imam Bukhari derives from both of these ahadith the importance of khushur in salah. Because the Prophet ﷺ reprimanded the people. He reprimanded them. He said, you think, I only look this way? I see I see you. So you, I, I, I know how you perform your ruku. I know how your khushur is. Properly perform your rukur. Properly perform your sujood. Now if you notice over here, the Prophet ﷺ is telling them, Aqimu, aqimu ruku'a was sujood. He's telling them to properly perform the actions of the prayer. Properly perform the actions of the prayer. Why? Because khushur is in the heart, but how is it demonstrated? Through the actions. So if the, if the heart does not have khushur, then the actions will not be performed properly. Alright? So this kind of tells us the importance of performing the prayer correctly also. Why perform it correctly? Because that shows that you have khushur. That is a result of khushur. But in this process, a person must not forget the khushur of the heart and only focus on the physical actions of the prayer. Okay? And if the heart is submissive, then for sure, the physical performance of salah would also be correct. Because remember, the statement where uh, a man was moving a lot in his prayer and touching his beard. And what was said? That if the khushur was in the heart, then his limbs would also be submissive. It would show on his limbs also. Now, khushur in the prayer is something that is expected of us. It is something that we must pay attention to. You see, there is certain etiquette of carrying yourself before others. When a person goes for an interview somewhere, they're not going to sit in that interview as a sit in their living room. Why? Because if they did that, they're not going to make it. Right? Likewise, in the Quran, we have been told to stand uh, in a particular way before our parents. وَخْفِضْ لَهُمَا جَنَاحَ الدُّلِّ مِنَ الرَّحْمَةِ Right? Show mercy. وَخْفِضْ لَهُمَا Lower the wing of mercy. Right? And 
Also, if you think about it, any person that you go in front of, if they are a big person, someone who has a lot of honor, a high position, then naturally you carry yourself more correctly, more respectfully. So standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does that demand from us? What does that necessitate? That we show humility and respect. Hmm? And that is through khushur. Now, khushur is, you can say, the essence of prayer. What is khushur? Khushur is from khashara. And khashara means to be pressed down, to be low, to be pressed down. And khushur is basically, you can understand this as hudurul qalb fi salah. The presence of the heart in the prayer. Meaning when the heart is present during the prayer. It's not absent. It's not absent. It's involved in the prayer. Not that a person is standing in prayer, but his heart is elsewhere. How can the heart be elsewhere? If a person is thinking about other things. Does it ever happen to us that we're physically present somewhere, but our mind, our heart is somewhere else? Many times. Sometimes we're sitting at the dinner table, we're apparently listening to someone who's saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're quiet for a moment. We're like, what happened? What did you say? Because we were absent. Khushur is the presence of the heart in the prayer. That a person knows, he's conscious about what he's saying, what he's reciting, how many times he has recited. Okay? Which rakah is it? He's aware. Why? Because the heart is awake. The heart is involved. So it is hudurul qalb fi salah. But it's not just the presence of the heart in the prayer. It is also ma'a sukun al-atraf. With the calmness of the body. What does that mean? Calmness, stillness of the body, what does that mean? That the movements are, the movements are only those which are required during the prayer. No extra excessive movements. Alright? And they're also correct. So for example, if a person has their hands placed properly on their chest, so right hand over the left wrist on the chest, uh, what does that show? Khushur. But if the hands are, you know, moving constantly, so for example, one moment they are scratching the elbow, another moment they are, you know, scratching the neck, another moment they are somewhere else, is that sukut? No. Is that stillness of the body? No, it's not. And if the body is not still, then what does that mean? There's no khushur. Or that khushur is very, very little. So remember both of these things. The heart has to be present and the body has to be calm. The body has to be involved also. Okay, Both of these together is khushur. And remember that khushur of the heart is more important than the khushur of the body. Khushur of the heart is more important than the khushur of the body. But it doesn't mean that the khushur of the body should be ignored. That a person keeps on scratching and massaging himself, and he says to himself, oh, my heart is so involved in the prayer. No, the heart is involved, the body should also be involved. And this was the way of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, some scholars, they even argued that khushur in prayer is actually wajib. It's mandatory. Meaning, prayer without khushur is not really prayer. Meaning a person is not going to get the maximum advantage of his prayer if he doesn't have khushur. But we see that as human beings, we struggle. Right? And there is evidence of this 
the Prophet ﷺ himself informed that when a person stands to pray, then what happens? Shaitan comes to him and says, remember this, remember this, remember that. In Sahih Muslim, Uthman ibn Abil As, he said that the Prophet ﷺ said, Shaitan inter- sorry, this man, uh, Uthman bin Abil As, he said to the Prophet ﷺ that Shaitan intervenes between me and my prayer and my reciting of the Qur'an and confuses me. So if the Sahaba experienced this, then other people, will they experience it? Of course they will. So what should we do then? Well, you know what? It's only natural. So too bad. And at the end of the prayer, oh, I didn't have khushur. Never mind. Maybe next prayer. What does it show to us? What should we do? The companion asking the Prophet ﷺ, he was concerned about it. Should we be concerned? Yes. The thing is that we think that just because we have perfected the method of prayer, our khushur is also perfected. And uh, it, it's automatically a part of our prayer. But the thing is that the method of prayer, yes, you don't really need to think much about it, but khushur, you really have to focus. Every single time. It's not like you reach a certain level of khushur in prayer and forever you will remain like that. No. One prayer, one rakah, a lot of khushur, second rakah, you don't know where you are. Hmm? So it's a constant effort because it's the involvement of the heart, right? And you know that how much you have to focus on certain things, especially when, when there's too many distractions out there. You know like when you're reading sometimes, you're reading a book and you reach the end of the page and you're like, what did I read? So then what do you do? Oh, I've read it already. Never mind. I'll just move on. No, you can't do that. Because what if the question comes from that page? You have to understand. And if you don't understand what's on that page, how will you understand what's on the next page? Right? So if you've, uh, if you've missed out on what was said completely, then what will you do? You will repeat it. And then for the next page, you will be more careful, more attentive. And to help yourself, you will do something. Like, if there's something distracting you, like some noise or some people talking, what will you do? Go somewhere else or choose another time. Or to help yourself focus, maybe you'll use a highlighter or a pencil. Right? So, in order to concentrate, because you see, the mind, it has a lot of ability. It's constantly working. You can never shut it off. Even in your sleep, you're having dreams. Right? So you can't tell your mind in, in the salah that now I'm praying so only focus on the prayer. No. It's got the ability to think. It, it's going to continue to think. Your test is that you have to channelize all your thoughts to what? To the prayer. During salah. And that is your khushur. So it's a constant struggle. It's a constant effort. It's a, it's a conscious one. You can never be casual about it. You have to really think about it. You know, it's like when a person starts driving, then at the beginning it's a very conscious action. Very conscious. How? That they're thinking about, okay, step, you know, my foot on the brake, my foot on the gas. Okay, right here, go look here. Very conscious. And other people, they're texting. Hmm? Now, performing the salah is not like learning to drive. Because if you take it as learning to drive, then you will finish your salah and you won't even realize. Like, you know, some people, they're driving on a particular route every day. Then what happens? They get to work and they're like, how did I get here? I don't even know. Because it's a, it's, it's a habit. Salah, we perform five times a day, but we cannot make it like a habit. 
in the sense that we don't consciously perform it. So for that, you have to put in a lot of effort, consciously, deliberately, every time. So this companion, he complained to the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ said, that is shaytan who is known as khinzab, meaning who is coming between you and your prayer, this is shaytan. And when you <clears throat> feel this during the prayer, then seek refuge with Allah from it. Seek refuge with Allah against this shaytan and spit three times to your left. Spit as in dry spit. Okay? Dry spit like on your left. So say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem and spit three times on your left. So this companion, he said that I did that and Allah dispelled that from me. Meaning that Alhamdulillah, my prayer was okay. So any time that you struggle with khushur, try this. Try this today with zuhr. Okay? So, you know, your mind keeps wandering away. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem. Wherever you are in the prayer and Okay, spittle, dry spit, three times to the left. During the salah. During salah. Yes, because it is during salah that shaitan comes, right? Before salah, why does he care? In the sense that he's not going to make you think about so many things. In hadith we learn that when a person stands up to pray, because when the adhan is pronounced and what happens, shaitan runs away. And when the adhan ends and the salah begins, shaitan comes. And he tells the person, remember this, remember this, remember this. And yes, all the ideas, they come to you in your salah. Right? All the things that you have to do, they come to you in your salah. In another hadith, we learn, the hadith of Jubair ibn Buth'im, that he saw the Prophet ﷺ begin the prayer. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he said, Allahu Akbar, he said, Allahu Akbar Kabira. Allahu Akbar Kabira. Allahu Akbar Kabira. How many times? Three times. Walhamdulillahi kathira. Walhamdulillahi kathira. Walhamdulillahi kathira. How many times? Three times. Wasubhanallahi bukratan wa asila. Wasubhanallahi bukratan wa asila. Wasubhanallahi bukratan wa asila. How many times? Three times. And he said, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytani min nafkhihi wa nafthihi wa hamzihi. That I seek refuge with Allah against the shaytan against his uh, nafkh, his blowing, and his hums, his poking, meaning from the waswas of shaitan, I seek refuge with Allah. So this is how the Prophet ﷺ began his prayer. What do we do generally? Allahu Akbar. And we start with a dua istiftah immediately, move on to Surah Fatiha, and continue with the prayer. We did not even seek refuge with Allah against shaitan. So during salah, shaitan will attack you. Because if your khushur is destroyed, what meaning does your salah have? What effect will it have, have in your life? How will it bring us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How will we beg before Allah? How will, how, how will we cry before Him? Seek forgiveness like honestly. We're not going to do that. So shaitan wants that our khushur should be destroyed so that our salah is meaningless. So in, in order to preserve our khushur, seek Allah's help. Seek refuge with Allah against the shaitan. Okay, now I have some homework for you. And what is that homework? Bring five practical ways of having khushur in salah. I mentioned to you one. And that is seeking refuge with Allah against the shaitan. And for that I told you a dua. And what is that? 
Allahu Akbar kabira, walhamdulillahi kathira, wa subhanallahi bukratan wa asila. Eat statement three times and a'udhu billahi minash shaytan, min nafkhihi, wa nafthihi, wa hamzihi. Okay, this is the report of Abu Dawud. Now you have to bring five ways, practical ways of having khushur in salah. Because this is a matter that we struggled with five years ago, and we struggled with five days ago, and we will struggle with today also. It's a constant struggle. So we, you might say, yeah, I heard a lecture once upon a time. No, we need to review this, inshallah. During the salah, if shaitan is really bothering you, and you say, A'udhu Billah, and you spit on your left three times, then you carry on from where you left off. Not that you have to begin your prayer all over again. No, you carry on from where you left off. So for example, you recited Surah Al-Fatiha, and you realize that too many waswas. You struggled with Al-Fatiha, how are you going to recite another surah? Or you know, certain thoughts, dirty thoughts, bad thoughts, evil thoughts are coming to your mind again and again. So, you want to eliminate them. So you do this, spit on your left three times, and then you recite your surah. Okay? And then you go into ruku. You continue with the salah. Inshallah. Now Imam Bukhari tells us, what should be said after takbir? Ma yaqulu. What he should say, takbir after the takbir. Meaning, after takbiratul ihram. After the first takbir. So you began the salah, said Allahu Akbar, placed your hands on the chest and reminded yourself, I better have khushur. Okay? Now what should you do? What should you say? حَدَّثَنَا حَفْصُ بْنُ عُمَرَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا شُعْبَةُ عَنْ قَتَادَةَ عَنْ أَنَسٍ أَنَّ النَّبِيَ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَأَبَا بَكْرٍ وَعُمَرَ رضي الله عنهما Anas رضي الله عنه who's a younger companion okay. He said that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and Abu Bakr and Umar. So the Prophet ﷺ and his companions, amongst his companions who? The best. Two he mentions. All of them, كانوا يفتتحون الصلاتة, they used to begin the prayer, be with, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Meaning with Surah Al-Fatiha. They would begin the prayer with what? With Surah Al-Fatiha. Now it seems like they're saying that when they would say Allahu Akbar, immediately they would start reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. But when we look at other ahadith, they mention that before Surah Al-Fatiha, the Prophet ﷺ would say something else. So then this hadith contradicts the rest? No. What is meant by this is that they would not say out loud. Meaning when they would lead people in prayer, then after the takbir, after saying Allahu Akbar out loud, they would not say anything out loud except Surah Al-Fatiha. Meaning, there would be a pause and then they would recite Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, so on and so forth. So in other words, any dua, okay, uh, the ta'awud, saying A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajim, the Basmalah, saying Bismillah, all of that would be jahri or sirri. Sirri, it would be silent. And then Surah Al-Fatiha would be jahri. It would be out loud so that the people behind them would hear. Okay? And this is clear from the next report. حدثنا موسى بن إسماعيل قال حدثنا عبد الواحد بن زياد قال حدثنا عمارة بن القعقاع 
قال حدثنا ابو زرعه قال حدثنا ابو هريره who's reporting ابو هريره رضي الله عنه is reporting قال he said كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to meaning this was his habit that yaskutu he would be silent sukut sukut is to be silent he would be silent baina takbiri between the takbir wa baina alqira'ah and between the qira'ah meaning the recitation iskatatan silence meaning he would observe silence between takbir and the recitation when when he would be leading the people in prayer so he would say allahu akbar silence and then he would recite surah al-fatiha Abu Hurairah observed this. Qala, he said, أَحْسِبُهُ I think, قَالَ هُنَيَّةً The narrator said that I think, Abu Hurairah said, هُنَيَّةً هُنَيَّة Meaning, very briefly. Meaning, a short pause. A little while. Not like he was silent for five minutes. Or he would be silent for a very long time. No. Very, very short pause. Okay. فَقُلْتُ So I said, Meaning Abu Hurairah he said that I said, Bi Abi wa Ummi. Meaning, may my father and my mother be sacrificed for you, Ya Rasulullah, Messenger of Allah. Iskatuka, your silence, Baina takbiri, between the takbir, wal qira'ati, and the qira'ah. With regards to your silence between the takbir and qira'ah, ma taqulu, what do you say? Because Abu Hurairah couldn't hear him. So he asked him, what do you say? He was curious. Qala, he said, Aqulu, I say, Allahumma ba'id bayni wa bayna khatayaya kama ba'adta bayna al-mashriqi wal-maghrib Allahumma naqini min al-khataya kama yunaqqa thawbu al-abiyadu min al-danas Allahumma aghsil khatayaya bil-ma'i wal-thalli wal-barad Dua of istiftah, that is what it is known as. So the Prophet ﷺ used to say this dua, how? Silently, quietly. And then he would begin the recitation out loud. Anything that you observed in the manner of Abu Hurairah His love and his respect. That he didn't ask the question straight up. What did he do? He said, Be Abi wa Ummi. I was listening to uh, a record, the recording of a lecture, a class that was being conducted by Sheikh bin Ruthaymin. And in that, one of the students, he said, What is the dalil of this? You know, you mentioned this, what is the What is the proof of this? Shaykh bin Uthaymin said that, first of all, you seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for asking a question in this manner. You don't ask a question from anybody, what is the proof of this? So he said, seek forgiveness from Allah because you have been disrespectful in the manner of asking the question. And... Uh, Generally, the way that you hear people asking questions in all these recordings is, Barakallahu feek ya shaykh. You know, they give some kind of dua. And then they ask the question. And we see that this is not an innovation or like extreme kind of respect. No, this was the way of the companions. That look at how Abu Hurairah he wanted to make sure the Prophet didn't, you know, get offended or didn't think, uh, you know, it didn't misunderstand Abu Hurairah, that Abu Hurairah is objecting, or he he's daring to ask. No, with utmost respect, he says, Be Abi wa Ummi, 
with regards to your silence between takbir and qira'ah, what is it that you say? He could have said, why are you silent after takbir? I don't get it. Were you saying something? I didn't hear anything. No. So respectful. And this kind of respect is very important. Hmm? That it also shows the curiosity of Abu Hurairah, how eager he was to learn that he didn't say, oh, it's okay if he's silent. No, he's wondering. The silence is, you know, it's not like one, you know, an exceptional situation. This is a norm. This is a habit. And the Prophet ﷺ would not be silent for, uh, you know, no reason. And he wanted to find out that if the Prophet ﷺ is saying something and I cannot hear it, I better know because I want to say it too. That if there was a question in his mind, some curiosity, he satisfied it by asking. Right? Okay. So, from these two ahadiths, what do we learn? That after the takbir, what should a person say? Some dua of istiftah. And over here we learn one dua. But in other ahadiths we learn many different duas. And when there are so many different ones that have been reported, then what should we do? Recite them. Right? Not that in every salah you read all of them. Rather, you know, keep changing them. And when you will do that, it will help you have more khushur in salah. Now, with regards to this dua in particular, Allahumma ba'id bayni wa bayna khatayaya. What does this dua mean? It means, Allahumma, O Allah, ba'id, distance. Create distance. Ba'id is from bu'd. What does bu'd mean? Distance. So ba'id. Create a distance. Remove far. Bayni between me, وَبَيْنَ خَطَايَا And between my sins. Create a distance, Ya Allah, between me and my sins. What kind of a distance? Kama just as ba'atta. You have created distance. بَيْنَ الْمَشْرِقِ وَالْمَغْرِبِ Between the east and the west. Just as the east and the west are so far apart, likewise, make me very, very far from my sins. Allahumma, O Allah, نَقِّنِي من الخطايا نقني cleanse me نقني from تنقية okay which means to cleanse so نقني cleanse me من الخطايا from sins كما just as ينقى it is cleansed what is cleansed الثوب الأبيض the white cloth من الدنس from dirt just as a white garment is cleansed from dirt likewise clean me from my sins. Allahumma, O oh Allah, igsil, wash, khatayaya, my sins. Meaning, wash my sins away from me. Bilma'i, with the water, wathalji, and the snow, walbarad, and the hail. Wash my sins off, wash my sins away, with water, snow, and hail. Now we see, there are three du'as over here. Hmm? First of all, Bu'd, of distance. That Ya Allah create distance between me and my sins. Secondly, secondly, of tanqiyah. That cleanse me of my sins. And thirdly, ghasl, wash me. Wash my sins away. Now, these three are basically stages. Stages of purification. First is muba'adah. Distance. That Ya Allah create distance between me and my sins. Distance between me and sins, meaning we are so far apart that I don't even go near those sins. 
so that I don't even commit those sins. And if I do end up committing those sins, then remove them away from me, create distance between me and my sins so that I am saved from the consequences of my sins. It's like, you know, when you hate something, what do you want? Distance. You want to be away from it. You want to move away from it. And this is distance of place and time. You know, when something is uh, one day old, you know, an incident, it still leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. But, you know, with the passage of time, what happens? You, you hope that you, f- you forget it. Right? It's history. You, you want to get over it. You want to move on from it. So likewise, dissociate me from my sins. Completely dissociate me from my sins. That there's no link between me and my sins. No link. I am not associated to those sins and those sins are not associated to me. I am not known by those sins. I am not defined by those sins. Yes, I committed them, but remove them from me. So ba'id, muba'ada. And also remember that sins have consequences, right? So distance between me and my sins so that I don't suffer the consequences. Secondly, tanqiyah. He's asking for tanqiyah, which is meaning cleanse me. right? That when I do end up committing the sins, then please, Ya Allah, cleanse me. Meaning remove their traces from me. Forgive me in such a way that their, their traces are even removed away from me. Now, notice how in the dua it has been said, نَقِّنِي مِنَ الْخَطَايَا كَمَا يُنَقَّ الثَّوْبُ الْأَبْيَضُ مِنَ الدَّنَسِ Like a white cloth is cleansed from dirt. You all have white hijabs. If there is even a small mark on a white hijab, is it evident? Hmm? Instantly it shows, which is why sometimes you can only wear a white hijab one day. Especially if you have children. Right? The next day you have to wear a fresh one. You have to wash it and, and, and wear a clean one. Whereas if there is a dark colored hijab, or let's say your abaya, then what happens? A stain on it, does it show immediately? No. You can have many stains on it, but it won't show. They won't show. So on white, even a little bit shows. And sometimes it happens that you wash your white hijab once, but still it's not that clean. So then what do you do? You treat the stains. Right? And they will only be removed when every trace of the stain has been removed. Which is why you bleach it. Right? Or you put a certain, you know, oxyclean or something like that. You spray on it so that every trace of that dirt, of that filth, of that stain, it's removed from the roots. And this is what we want. That there's no trace of the sin left on us in our record. That Ya Allah, remove it. Just like a white cloth is clean. And you know, sometimes you really have to treat white clothes. That you have to, you know, spray on this, on the certain stains. And then when you wash them, you put certain detergents and added cleaners. Why? So that it's very, very clean. Other clothes, I mean, if there's a stain, it'll get hidden in the color. But white will show everything. And then thirdly, ghasl. That, oh Allah, wash me. Allah maghsil khatayaya bil ma'i wa thalji wal barad. Meaning, absolutely, you know, completely clean me. Now, notice how water is mentioned. Wash me with water, snow and hail. Why three? 
because it's white cloth. Right? Likewise, it's our soul. And whenever a sin is committed, it leaves deep, deep marks, deep stains. And for that, one wash is not sufficient. One detergent is not sufficient. You have to use multiple. One attempt, a second attempt, a third attempt. You all do laundry and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Right? That certain clothes, sometimes they keep going in the laundry. You take them out of the dryer and you're like, no, it's not clean still. You have to treat it more. Yeah. You wash every time, your white hijab, but every time you check, is there any new stain, any new mark? Right? So, بِالْمَاءِ وَالثَلْجِ وَالْبَرَدِ Now, one thing. Wash with snow and hail. Snow and hail, they're cold. And you would understand that if water is being mentioned with that, that water would be cold as well. Don't we think that generally hot water cleans better? This is what many people think. But it's actually quite the contrary. When it comes to stains, cold is better. Try it. I want you to try it. This is your homework. Okay? Next time you're doing laundry and there is a stain on something, as you put the detergent, then use cold water. Okay? You know, if you have a white hijab or something and so there's some ink stain or some ketchup stain or something, put it under running cold water and see how that color will run away. Literally. It will get washed off with the water. With hot, what happens is that it spreads. With the cold, the molecule doesn't really break up. Okay? And it will just get washed off with the water. So cold washes better. And also... Notice how three are mentioned, right? Why? Because more washing. Okay, everybody say this dua. So, when you know the meaning of this dua, will it be easy to, inshallah, read this? Hmm? Because the Prophet ﷺ used to read this, right? Beautiful dua. A very needed dua. Do you know this dua? Okay. Alhamdulillah. If you don't know it, uh, make an attempt inshallah and try to memorize it. Write it down somewhere for yourself so that you can review it more easily. And make a point to memorize this dua because it's a beautiful dua. Inshallah. And you can also read this to one another in your groups okay, to make sure that you're reading it correctly. Inshallah. Yes, there are many other duas besides this one. Inshallah, there will be... Um, this sheet available in our bookstore Dua Istiftah The different duas for Istiftah That you can read That are shorter than this Longer than this okay. And as I mentioned to you earlier Combination is always better Yes, you can do that That, uh, For example, if you want to say Two or three duas So for instance, the dua that I mentioned earlier Allahu Akbar Kabira Walhamdulillahi Kathira Subhanallah Bukratan Wa Asila And then the Ta'awud should you say that first or should you say this first? You could say that one first simply because uh, there's ta'awud. Okay, in that you're seeking refuge with Allah against shaitan. And then you make dua. Okay, you could also reverse the order. There's no harm in that. 
Okay? That is also one version, saying Allahu Akbar kabira walhamdulillahi kathira wa subhanallahi bukratan wa asila once, and that's it. That's also one version. But another version is saying each of these three statements three times, and then the ta'awud after that. So you could do both. The days when you're struggling with khushur a lot, then you could do the longer version. And the days that alhamdulillah your iman is high, then you could do the shorter version. Okay? Inshallah. The next hadith is long, so inshallah we will do this tomorrow, inshallah. Okay, your homework again, let's review. First homework, this is understood, that you have to read out the ahadith and the abwab out loud, okay, at home, and inshallah you will review them in groups. Did you review the previous ahadith in the groups? Good, alhamdulillah. And in the groups, you can also discuss the meanings or the lessons or something that you thought about afterwards or maybe a question that you may have. And feel free to ask me. Okay? Inshallah. Secondly, your homework is bring five points, practical points that should help you have khushur in your salah. And thirdly, wash some stain from a white cloth. Now, I don't mean to say the dirty or white hijab today. Okay, but if it happens, then wash it with how? Cold water. Try cold water. Okay. In Sahih Bukhari, whenever we see a hadith that begins with haddathana so and so, then because Imam Bukhari is writing this, we understand that he took this hadith from that person. So that person would be who? His teacher or the person from whom he took the hadith from. Meaning, the first one would be the teacher of Imam Bukhari. Because he heard hadith from over a thousand scholars, right? And the one after that would be the teacher of his teacher. Okay? And the one after that would be the teacher of teacher's teacher. And then most probably a tabari and then a sahabi. Okay? Inshallah. Inshallah, later on I will also ask you to, once you have a list of the names of Imam Bukhari's teachers, make a list on the side. This is also your homework. Fourth homework. A lot of homework, huh? You know, this homework, you could actually make it as your classwork. If you have, let's say, the back of your notebook or one page of your notebook dedicated for this, just quickly flip that open and write the name down. So inshallah, eventually I will also ask you to research these people and inshallah I'll teach you how to do that. Because we should know about these great people. Who were these people? To us, it's only names. But remember what I told Imam Bukhari? To him, they weren't just names. He knew about them, who they were, where they were born, what they studied, where they studied from. Okay, Because these people are, they have done a great ihsan on us. A great ihsan on us. If they didn't strive, if they didn't learn, if they didn't teach, how would we know? Beautiful reminder that reading the names of the narrators gets difficult. That's, I believe, the most difficult part of the hadith, meaning reading it even when it comes to memorizing. That is quite difficult. But remember that these were great people uh, who were honest, truthful, knowledgeable men who met the standards of Imam Bukhari, right? And they have done a great ihsan on us. So the least we can do is at least read their name properly, inshallah. And you will find some of their names very, very beautiful. And you know when people ask you all the time, so-and-so is going to have a baby, what name? So pay attention to these names when people randomly ask you. These were scholars, and we should give names after who? Righteous people, among some, first of all, the prophets, and then the companions, and obviously, great ulama also. Okay? 
سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد ان لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته